All right, guys, we'll get we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Tyson Shulin. He's presenting to us from Brook Army Medical Center, uh, where he currently sits as the Deputy Chief of Critical Care Medicine, as well as the APD for their internal medicine uh, residency. In addition to those tasks, um, and prior to this, uh, he did a pulmonary critical care fellowship, um, and he has done a couple of deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq over the past five to seven years. Um, and so what he's going to talk to us about today is massive transfusion um, from the critical care perspective. So with that, Tyson, it's all yours. Thank you, Nikhil. So normally I'm pretty interactive and I like to involve the uh, audience, but however, with the Zoom, we'll, we'll be a little bit limited there. So Nikhil, I might be using your name every once in a while just to make everybody uh, you know, paying attention here. So thank you so much for allowing me to talk uh, and thank you for that uh, introduction, uh, Nikhil. So what I'll be using a little bit is my time in the military uh, to kind of talk about massive transfusion, a little bit of hemorrhagic shock and how we get there. Uh, but I don't want this to be a military unique talk all on its own. So when I use military, I think we can go ahead and use the term resource limited. Uh, and we do know that even the last couple of years, resource limited has happened in the United States with the pandemic of COVID. Uh, I can still remember August 2021 at a local hospital in San Antonio that I was working in where I ran out of ventilators. Uh, and so when I use military, I'm going to try to use more of a resource limited, and that resource limited may be during a pandemic at a big hospital in a, in a large city, or it may be a, a smaller hospital somewhere in the United States. Uh, you do have to remember that most of medicine is still given uh, in rural America, so we'll kind of discuss that uh, as we go, so thank you so much. So first of all, uh, I have nothing to disclose, and these are the thoughts of myself, not the United States Army or the United States military. So the objectives of today, we're going to do massive transfusion definition, uh, which I think is very important to have definitions, maybe not as much at the, at the bedside, but as, uh, as we start looking at research into massive transfusion. Whole blood versus component therapy, and I do have a disclaimer there that I am a big fan of whole blood, uh, and anybody that has read any type of military history knows that uh, we've been using whole blood since 1917. We got away from it, but we're back into it, and so we'll discuss whole blood versus component therapy, and of course, we can't do a talk like this without talking about balanced uh, blood resuscitation with the one-to-one-to-one. Uh, TXA we'll discuss. We'll also talk about the use of a TEG and a ROTAM and the limitations with those two devices. Uh, instead of the lethal triad, now uh, I wanted to throw in a new term called the lethal di uh, diamond, and then we'll talk about some complications. So I thought we would start with a case, uh, and where I want you to picture yourself is that we're working in rural Oklahoma. I use Oklahoma because that's where I'm born and raised, and uh, it's dear to my heart. But you're working at a, a smaller hospital in rural Oklahoma, and you get a phone call saying that uh, EMS is bringing in a young man. Uh, what we know right now is that patient has fell from a third floor uh, balcony, and they expect that patient to be inbound in about 15 minutes. So right then and there, uh, we have to start working through communication with the team aspect. So, you know, we can't do this talk without really talking about team. And when I talk about team, I talk about logistics. So as we all know, this is a team sport and nothing becomes more of a team sport than a massive casualty or a one casualty uh, that requires a lot of resources. 
So some of the things that we need to start looking at before that patient arrives is number one, uh, do we think that patient is going to be a massive transfusion or not? On the next slide, we'll talk about some parameters that we can talk to EMS about. We can ask about the injury pattern that they see. And downrange, this is something that we can actually activate a walking uh, blood bank before the patient even arrives uh, based on some parameters, based on vital signs and based on in in injury. And we'll talk about that. Um, the first thing is, is that I would start looking at is number one, are we dealing with one casualty or are we dealing with multiple casualties? Because uh, that can really change our approach. If we're dealing with one uh, casualty and we're at a big level one trauma center that resources are unlimited, then, you know, we're going to go at it. We're going to have pretty much unre uh, unlimited resources of blood uh, with a whole team of uh, people that can help us stop the bleeding to include our trauma surgeons, our general surgeons. Uh, our IR colleagues, uh, and our vascular docs. So the first thing is, is I would start looking at that. The next thing is, is as we know with the lethal triad, uh, one of the first things we do uh, is in a deployed resource-limited environment, we would look at temperature control. So if I got this phone call, one of the first things we would do uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, or even in the U.S., is I would go ahead and crank off the ACs. And talking to some of the trauma surgeons over the last couple of weeks preparing for this uh, lecture, they all kind of laugh. We all do this, but it's probably not the most important thing. Um, but go ahead and start trying to get ahead of hypothermia beforehand. So kind of like in the burn unit, uh, let's go ahead and crank that uh, heat up to above 90 degrees if we're going to the OR, turn it on off the ACs if we're in a resource-limited hot environment. The next thing is we need to start looking at uh, where are our resources currently. Uh, so in this smaller hospital, I would probably want to know quickly, what does our blood product uh, you know, shelf look like? And so in, in Iraq, which I got back from a couple of years ago, every time we would walk in to a shift, we would have a board set up and it would know exactly how much whole blood I have and how much uh, packed red blood cells I have, how much FFP I have. We usually never had platelets because their storage life is only about 14 days, even with uh, advanced uh, uh, storage techniques, how much cryo I might have. And so that would be very important. So some of the first things I would start uh, discussing with my team is how much blood do I currently have? The next thing is, is having a shared mental model so that when that patient arrives, we know that the most important thing with massive transfusion is probably stopping the hemorrhage. Uh, so this picture up in the right-hand corner is just a picture of us her rehearsing of how a casualty may arrive. And what we always did there was we always, I always had one individual running one extremity. So for example, I had one patient, one uh, medic that would run the left upper extremity. So they would expose the left upper extremity, get the uh, uh, clothing off, and then go ahead and make sure that we have no blood products on the upper extremity. If they saw blood products, go ahead and put a tourniquet on. We always placed our tourniquets right where the medic could grab it, uh, and that way you don't have to be reaching or searching for things. If they didn't have a tourniquet that needed to be applied right then and there, they would go ahead and give me access with an 18-gauge into the AC. The same thing would be going on to this on the right upper extremity, the left lower extremity, the right lower extremity, and the right lower extremity. So that would all be done beforehand. There wouldn't need to be any communication between the team members because we had rehearsed that and rehearsed that. One thing I'm always uh, reminded of when we when we go into a team sport like this 
uh, is rehearsal is always so important. We're so blessed in the military because this is what we do on a day in and day out. We rehearse with the same team. But however, when I go to local hospitals in the San Antonio area, I don't have that luxury of always rehearsing with my team because I am not working with them on a, on a daily basis. Um, the next thing is, is always knowing your equipment. And one thing that I've just, uh, you know, I have a lot of learning scars through these years of practicing medicine. So one of the learning scars I had was we were ready to get bigger IV access in a, set, a setting of needing to do a massive transfusion, but we didn't have all our equipment right then and there. And so we quickly identified that one of the best things we could do is we could go ahead and have these go kits. So this is just an example here in the left upper extreme, uh, screen here of us having a central line kit. And these were placed everywhere in our, our, our small little uh, medical center. And so we could grab them. It had everything we needed. We could go ahead and get access and, and not be looking for different uh, components that we would need to complete that procedure. The bottom left-hand side is just another example of, of, of having to work with your team, your anesthesiology team, your ER team. And a lot of times we have to feel uncomfortable. So even in the United States, I've been at hospitals that were non-military that in uh, more of a mass, a mass casualty scenario, I was asked to come down to the ER and run an ER bed. Uh, and so that was something that puts me out of my comfort zone because I don't know that equipment. Uh, but I needed to go ahead and make sure that we knew exactly what our goals were, what our tasks were, and so we could limit the amount of communication that we were having to have. And so this is an example of my time in Iraq, or, Af or actually Africa, of looking at uh, teaching them how to do ultrasound guided, uh, you know, central access. We had time for that, uh, but really communicating with the anesthesia team that was really ran by the military aspect of the Africa team, uh, that where we would be uh, helping out during a mass casualty or a hemorrhagic shock patient. Um, a lot of people always wanted to know uh, a little bit about a walking blood banks. And so the walking blood bank is, is getting fresh whole blood from one uh, individual and, and transfusing that. Um, that's made famous in the military because that's something that we get, that we, we, we can use. However, that is not FDA approved. Um, but that was just something that really reminded me that activating a walking blood bank, which, you know, you probably will not be doing in the United States, uh, is really one of the largest and hardest logistics uh, uh, exercises I've ever seen. Uh, so this is just an example of us actually teaching our computer tech how to put an 18 gauge, actually a 14 gauge into the AC and how to draw blood. Because uh, remember, they're in a mass casualty. The people that are actually going to be drawing the blood are not going to be anybody medical, right? Uh, because everybody that's medical, your nurses, your LPNs, LVNs, your docs, they're all tied up doing their jobs. And so we had to teach non-medical people how to draw blood. Uh, and that was not an easy task at all. The next thing is, is... Uh, as we start building our, our idea, that patient that we were just called about that fell, we need to start trying to figure out, is this a patient, how sick is this patient, and are we going to be likely uh, needing a massive transfusion? So let's, let's talk about definitions. So massive transfusion is really, uh, you'll see a lot of different uh, definitions of that, but the one I think is used most universally is going to be 10 units of packed red blood cells in a 24 hours. And where did that come from? I always ask myself, where did we get this? And it really became from, that's about the entire blood volume uh, for a 70 kilogram male. So where that 
that that came from. Now, when you're receiving that patient in the first couple of hours, when you're in the heat of the moment trying to sling blood, that really, that definition doesn't help us much because that's a 24-hour retrospective definition. Um, so the one that I think is can be more helpful is more than three units of packed red blood cells in the first 30 uh, minutes or more than four packed uh, red blood cells in the first hour. That is a definition of a massive transfusion that you'll also see in the literature. The other definition you'll see is the ultra-massive transfusion. So you guys have all done this in your past with probably a bad cirrhotic GI bleeder, right, of having to give large and large amounts of blood products. And so, you know, a cirrhotic that comes in and has a massive GI bleed from a variceal nature, you know, it's not uncommon that we've all given 20, 30, 40 units uh, and sometimes upper than that. So you'll hear that definition also, and that's called ultra-massive transfusion. That's looking at more than 20 units of packed red blood cells. But I think the thing that helps me the most is I like to keep things simple. So kind of the KISS principle is the shock index. So up in the right-hand corner, this is something I can use clinically at the bedside to kind of help drive as that patient arrives. Or even before that patient shows up, I might ask my EMS or my medevac pilot, hey, what is our heart rate and what is our systolic blood pressure? And so this is pretty simple. If your heart rate is higher than your systolic blood pressure, you're not going to have a good day. And so you'll read 0.9 to 1, but let's keep it simple. Heart, if your heart rate's higher than your systolic blood pressure, that is a strong indication of somebody that's going to need a massive transfusion. So let's get things activated. Let's ask, tell the blood bank, let's start getting our coolers of blood. Let's make sure that one thing I forgot to, to make a big, big point is as soon as that casualty arrives, please, please, please try to get some blood drawn from the patient to be sent off for a typing screen before you start throwing blood in, okay? Uh, that's very, very important. It will help you out later as you may start going to component therapy uh, and or whole blood directed at whatever the patient's AB, uh, ABO uh, compatibility is. The next thing you'll see in the literature is the ABC score. Uh, and so this is something that's pretty simple. Again, it's, it's looking at the mechanism of injury. So a penetrating uh, mechanism will get you a point. Once again, you'll see that systolic blood pressure below 90 will get you a point. A heart rate that's high will get you a point. And then a fast exam. I'm a big, big component of the fast exam. And so I think this is one of the most important things that I think that we can do. And for all, all patients in shock, uh, you know, a modified uh, fast exam or a, uh, you know, a fast protocol can really help you out trying to differentiate the di different etiologies of that shock. And so if you get more than two points on that ABC score, then that's going to be a high prediction of needing to activate uh, a massive transfusion protocol. So the next thing that could help you at bedside, I'm a clinical bedside doc, is a narrowed pulse pressure. So as that systolic blood pressure and diastolic pressure start getting closer and closer together, and less than 30, if a good number you want to read about, that is somebody that's progressing along in the categories of shock. That patient is probably getting into that, that uh, third and fourth uh, degree of shock when you're looking at loss of more than 50% of blood volume. So those are things that we could ask the paramedic as uh, as they call in for that patient is, hey, what is the heart rate? What's the systolic blood pressure? Uh, and we can start trying to figure out what's our pretest probability that we're going to need to get ready for a massive transfusion. Uh, so those are some nice clinical uh, bedside tools that we can use, and I think they're very helpful. 
The next thing is we can't do this talk without me showing you a little bit of difference, differences between whole blood and component therapy. When I say component therapy, that's the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one that we'll talk about. And so remember, whole blood is just not something for a deployed resource-limited environment, right? And so many cities, to include San Antonio, awesome, right, uh, is giving whole blood in the civilian EMS, so they're giving TXA at the point of injury as they drive that patient to a level one trauma center. Uh, and also we're given whole blood in the ED at many hospitals. And I actually can give whole blood in the medical ICUs at Brook Army Medical Center. And uh, that can be for any type of bleeders, right? And so remember, this, most of this literature is coming from the trauma literature. But however, uh, everything that bleeds, it bleeds whole blood. So remember esophageal bleeding, uh, severe abdominal bleeding. Uh, and what I've ran into twice, Nikhil, in the last couple of uh, six months is I don't know what happened to me, but we ran into severe femoral artery bleeding uh, and into the, to the scenario that uh, having source control with any type of direct pressure, uh, we were not winning the game. And we had to look at uh, etiologies of better uh, source uh, hemorrhagic control to include looking at Reboa. So what is whole blood versus component therapy? Um, you know, one of the things that we don't really talk about a whole lot, and this is a slide that I stole from uh, Colonel Cap, who is the leader of, uh, of blood transfusions for the United States military, is looking at whole blood versus component therapy. You have a higher degree of hemoglobin hematocrit of whole blood versus component therapy. That's a win. We like that. You have a higher degree of platelets than you do with component therapy. You have a higher degree of fibrinogen activity. Your tags are almost normal when you look at day 21, even cold stored whole blood. And then aspect-wise, remember uh, a lot of times as a physician in, in some of these resource-limited environments, you're more of a logistics officer. That's what I spent most of my time about. And that's that's pretty common for us, right? Because in the ICU environment, uh, in the ER environment, we always have to be thinking three steps ahead. So I always tell my fellows and my residents, one of our main jobs is always be three steps ahead of that patient and be prepared for that patient. And so when it comes to a logistics uh, of giving whole blood versus component therapy, you can get, you, you don't have to carry as much volume uh, and you don't have to have different degrees and different abilities to, uh, to store that blood, like fresh frozen plasma needing a, a, a freezer capability. Uh, and so those are some things I wanted to highlight on uh, some unique aspects of a whole blood versus a component therapy. The next thing I wanted to, uh, to highlight on the difference between whole blood and giving a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one balance uh, resuscitation is that the, the degree of citrate, the amount of citrate that you're going to be giving and the amount of additives that you're going to be giving. And so we all know citrate is in the, uh, the bags as we collect these different types of blood products to help chelate uh, calcium so we, that we prevent the clotting factors being activated. But remember that uh, that citrate then is given to the patient, and it's just this is a nice little uh, screen here. If you ever want to take a screenshot of this, uh, this is from Colonel Cap again, uh, looking that if you wanted to give an equal amount of six units of whole blood versus uh, the equivalent of uh, six one to one to one, you'd be given uh, three times the amount of citrate. Uh, with a component therapy than you would be giving for the same amount of whole blood. Uh, and that will be very, very important as the, one of the highlights of this, this talk is going to be calcium. And we'll get to those slides in the future. 
The next thing is, is where some of this data comes from. Uh, so backing away from the whole blood and looking at what is the best way to give component therapy, if that is our option. So a lot of times, even at Brook Army Medical Center, once we get out of the ER and get out of the pre-hospital scenario, uh, we are asked to give component therapy over whole blood. And so what is the best way to give component therapy? Uh, and, and, and we'll keep on talking about this to drive it home is everybody that bleeds, bleeds whole blood. And I think this is pretty much uh, uh, is something that is practiced routinely at almost all hospitals is that we know that we need to try to equal the same um, uh, uh, mixture of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets. Uh, and so this is a, a, a big study uh, back in 2015 in JAMA by uh, Dr. Holcomb. Holcomb uh, is, a, is a leader in uh, trauma and uh, military hemorrhagic shock. Uh, and, and once again, we're looking at one-to-one-to-one versus one-to-one-to-two. What does that kind of look like? That, that two versus one is the amount of packed red blood cells. And once again, uh, the big thing is the primary outcome was mortality at one day or mortality at 30 days. And those, that was not significantly different. However, as you can see here, there was a trend towards lower mortality, uh, at 24 hours and 30 days. Uh, but you can see that we achieved hemostasis at a higher level in the component of one to one to one versus the people that were giving one to one to two. Uh, and the amount of patients that bled out were, was, uh, lower in this. And actually, if you look at the three hour data, there is some, uh, trend towards a lower mortality at that first three hours. That first three hours, as we know, is very, very important. Uh, we know that based on the TXA data. We know that based on the golden hour that we talk about in trauma, and that's really a 90-minute hour, uh, that we need to go ahead as quickly as we can. We need to stop the bleeding. Uh, we need to, you know, refill the blood volume, uh, and we need to not cause more injury. And those are some of the things we'll highlight through the rest of this talk. The next thing I kind of asked myself, so we'll go back to our scenario. So we're back in small town Oklahoma. Our patient has arrived. Uh, they're clearly in a shock index that is elevated. Our heart rate initially is 140. Our systolic blood pressure is 80. Uh, we know that we're having some end organ dysfunction, and the easiest thing to do with that is probably an altered mental status because we're not going to wait around for urine output. Uh, looking at capillary refill is important. What is old is new again. Uh, and so we, we clearly, clearly identify our patient. We're in a shock index above one and that we have the mechanism that makes sense. Uh, and so one of the things I often ask myself is if we have the ability to give whole blood, uh, can we intermix whole blood with component therapy? And so we're going to go back to resource limited. So back in this small town, Oklahoma, uh, you may find yourself not having a lot of platelets of any platelets, right? Uh, so you may find yourself having a decent amount of packed red blood cells and, and FFP, but you may have a low amount of platelets because of the shelf life of platelets. And so you're given one to one to one or given one to one uh, packed reds to FFP, but you don't have that platelet uh, to keep that one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. And so what we found ourselves uh, in Iraq and, and also in Afghanistan was giving uh, whole blood. So, you know, we had component therapy, we had whole blood. And so what my practice pattern is, is usually is give two to four units of whole blood initially. 
At that point, I'm hoping my type and screen has come back. And now I know that that patient is, let's say, for example, A positive. I would then probably go to component therapy with A positive packed red blood cells and AAB FFP uh, and do that for another four to six units. Uh, And if I didn't have platelets, I would try to give a unit of whole blood every six units of packed red blood cells. Because as we talked about before, we've got some platelet activity that's pretty decent in that whole blood. This is a study looking at some Canadian and also U.S. data of using whole blood as an adjunct to uh, component therapy. uh, And there was a trend towards uh, lower mortality uh, in that study too. All right, so this is corny, but I like to be corny because you guys probably remember corny stuff. So uh, remember, I'm from Oklahoma. I like to think, keep things simple. So in the heat of a moment, this is going to be chaotic, and I just want to make sure I'm not missing things. So instead of the one-to-one-to-one, I just talk about the high five, and that's the five components of that patient that I, I, I go back, Nikhil, I don't want to miss. So if I'm in uh, the U.S. and I'm not giving whole blood, I want to make sure that I'm doing the five things, and those are going to be a couple things. I'm going to get, get start my uh, one unit of packed red blood cells. All right, the next thing is I'm going to start my plasma. The next thing is I'm going to start my platelets. Now, platelets, let's talk a little logistics on platelets. Uh, you probably should not be giving platelets through your rapid infuser of Belmont or level one. Uh, it probably will not destroy the platelets based on the anesthesia literature, but what it will do is clog up your filter uh, which will limit your ability to sling blood at a higher level. And so it's very important to get another peripheral IV and start giving those platelets. And some believe platelets are maybe the most important component uh, to give. So in my mind, as I'm trying to direct the team here, start platelets in that peripheral IV, and then we'll start, you know, hopefully before that patient showed up, we're already setting up the Belmont, our blood's already arrived, and we're ready to run. Um, so blood, FFP, platelets. The next two things I think are for me to keep things that I don't forget is TXA. And so you look back and we'll look at the, the crash two and the matters. Uh, and what we do know is, uh, there is some strong signal, uh, that TXA is beneficial, especially if given in the first three hours from the point of injury. Uh, and so I'll start and I'll give two grams of TXA in, in, and that's a recent change in our literature. Uh, we used to give one gram in the first three hours, and then we would hang another gram to be infused over the next hours. Nobody has time for that. We just give two grams initially, uh, and over a quote, slow push, because if you give it more, uh, a fast push, you could cause hypotension. So as soon as that patient's arrived, I'm given two grams of TXA and I'm kind of done with it. One practice pattern with our trauma surgeons that you'll often see is after the first 10 units of product, we'll give another gram of TXA. Uh, and then going further down the road, if we're lucky enough to have a guided ther- a resuscitation plan using a Rotam or a um, uh, a TAG, uh, we could start using TXA where we needed to based on, based on our lysis 30 data. And then I give calcium. As soon as I give that first blood product, I give calcium. Calcium chloride is one that you should be thinking about because you should be giving a gram of calcium chloride uh, and or uh, remember, if you're giving calcium gluconate, you need to give 30 
because calcium glucate doesn't have the same amount of elemental calcium. And then after every four units, I'm giving more calcium and really ionized calcium is what we should be checking and trying to keep that level above 1.2 is the goal there. So that's my high five. Uh, if you guys want to uh, use that, then uh, please help yourself out. But it kind of reminds me initially, don't miss the TXA, don't miss the calcium, because uh, those are very, very important uh, uh, things for part of this massive transfusion. All right. So a lot of different massive transfusion protocols out there. Uh, one that you'll kind of see that's uh, pretty universal, uh, although there's a recent study in the last couple of years that we polled uh, uh, physicians, and only about 55 to 65% of physicians actually had a massive transfusion protocol in their hospital. Uh, I do think it's important to kind of game plan and, and uh, discuss that before those casualties start coming in, or you start having those massive GI bleeders in your uh, ICU. Uh, our practice pattern here at BAMSI is kind of simple. The first cooler that will be brought to us when we activate a massive transfusion will be six units of packed red blood cells, six units of FFP, one apheresis unit of platelets. And then I like this one because it says consider the TXA. And what I would actually do with this if I was high speed enough and I was planning this in this on the side on top of here would be a taped two grams of TXA and uh, uh, one uh, unit, uh, one gram of calcium chloride. Uh, the Belmont, remember that the lethal triad, the lethal uh, pentad, uh, is really going to be hypothermia. And so whenever we're giving blood, uh, we need to be giving it in a warmed environment. Um, there are devices that uh, can give warm blood, but it's slower devices. Some of those are the the, the angel, the ranger devices. But when we're wanting to give massive transfusion, uh, the Belmont or the level one is uh, is two devices on the market that you'll see frequently given. I will warn you doing this a lot of a lot of different times uh, in uh, non-military uh, hospitals and also rehearsing this on a, on a, a monthly basis. Uh, this is something that is not always the easiest to set up. And I kind of challenge my team that I want this set up within two minutes. Uh, so if you're trying to... Uh, rehearse this, uh, this is something that I really pay attention to. And this really may need to be a, a dedicated, high-level uh, team member that has expertise in this. This should not be the first time they set up a Belmont during a, an actual patient encounter. Now, in our protocol, uh, what we'll see on the second unit, uh, second cooler that comes to us uh, will be, once again, six units of packed red, six, six units of FFP, but instead of using platelets, we'll go ahead and give 10 units of cryoprecipitate. And I think that's very, very important. And we do know there's some populations, especially with the obstetrics population. So one of the hospitals I work with in, uh, uh, in, in local San Antonio has a very, very high risk of uh, obstetrics complications and hemorrhagic obstetrics bleed. And we do know uh, that that, that uh, special population actually has an extremely low fibrinogen level. Uh, and so cryo may be something uh, that you look at using earlier uh, and or more often. And if you're not having the privilege of using a TEG and looking at that maximal amplitude or if, even at that alpha angle, angle or that K time, uh, remember that's a special population. Depending on who you read, fibrinogen, checking fibrinogen levels every 30 minutes to an hour is something that you also see. And, and, and my practice pattern is trying to keep a level above 150. And that in the literature, that'll be anywhere from 100 to 200, depending on who you're reading. 
but remember cryo is something that really is something we use early on uh, if we have it. Uh, and so that will be uh, put into our second cooler. Once we start getting on uh, further along that, um, we try to start using uh, guided therapy using our uh, Rotam or TEG. Let's look at that literature. And so, you know, this is something that we're trying to get rapid uh, TEGs and Rotam, something that you can use at the bedside that doesn't take as much time to uh, get back. Because if I draw your blood now and I don't get this uh, data back for another 30 minutes in a massive transfusion, that's a whole different patient, right? Uh, that has We've turned over their blood volume multiple different times. And that may be not as helpful. But remember that if you're waiting for the complete TEG or ROTAM to get back to you, that the lysis 30, that stands, that 30 stands for 30 minutes. So they're going to wait until the 30 minutes to get you that entire uh, data point back. You know, if you have a team member that's been assigned, maybe you can call the lab earlier and say, hey, within that first five or 10 minutes of that blood hitting the lab, can you at least give me my R time or at least give me my K time? And that way you can start saying, okay, is that somebody that has a prolonged R time, has a prolonged K time, that we may need to be focusing more on our coagulation factors and giving more FFP uh, earlier on? Because a lot of times uh, we don't know if these massive transfusions, these cirrhotic patients, uh, you know, it seems like everybody that I ever meet now in my medical ICU is on some type of DOAC. And so we may not know that patient uh, if they're on any type of anticoagulation. And we still don't recommend empirically treating uh, these massive transfusion medical patients with empiric, uh, P, uh, you know, prothrombin complex or protamine, uh, unless you do know uh, that that patient is on that medication. Uh, another thing is the tech can, you can add on the platelet activity and the platelet assays. And that's really something that's very uh, important. Uh, as we start looking at other reasons of why our coagulation uh, uh, cascade is out. Uh, the initial tech that you get on a, or, or on a patient can be predictive. Um, if you see some really long R times, a long K time, and a maximal amplitude that's really low uh, on that initial tech that you get, that's another predictive value of that patient going to need massive transfusion, and that could help you out. Uh, and then when you look at the data, when you're using an FFP, uh, when you're using a, a TEG or a ROTAM to help guide your, uh, uh, your resuscitation, you'll probably end up losing, using less FFP in platelets. Uh, but a recent study uh, that's highlighted there uh, showed no decrease in mortality, and that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, but remember, this is something, a luxury that a lot of resource-limited hospitals in the U.S. may not have. Uh, I know I don't have this luxury at almost every hospital that I work at besides Brook Army Medical Center, which is a level one trauma center for the uh, south uh, part of Texas. Um, and I definitely don't have this luxury uh, in a deployed setting. Uh, but this, it did take a little bit of time to mention this. All right. So I think another term that is important to kind of memorize and, and kind of remind ourselves, we all know about the lethal triad. Uh, and that's the acidosis and the hypothermia. Let's talk about those two things, first of all, uh, that we do know that when we get into an anaerobic metab metabolism, we get in severe blood uh, loss, hemorrhagic shock, uh, that we will start getting into an acidemia uh, pretty early uh, and also hypothermia. 
And, and so what I'm reminded when I was talking to my, my trauma surgeons uh, who were giving me some pearls about this lecture is they said, you know, we, you will not stop the acidosis and the hypothermia until you do two things, stop the bleeding and resuscitate them with blood. Uh, and so those are two things that uh, those are back to our priorities, not to make this too complicated. The coagulation, the thing I can tell about uh, one thing is I just don't give any type of crystalloids in these patients. Uh, I don't give normal saline. I don't, I don't give lactated ringers. Uh, if this patient, if I, if that patient that fell from the balcony has has landed into our our ICU or ER, uh, I'm going to get uh, source control the best we can. We're going to do a fast exam, looking for bleeding and need to go to the OR. Uh, but I am not going to be defending that map or that systolic blood pressure uh, with crystalloids. And this is another term that we'll use here is damage control resuscitation. Uh, that is a term that really says permissive hypotension is what we should be aiming for. And so if you don't have a TBI, that means a systolic blood pressure goal of probably about 100 millimeters of mercury. If you do have a TBI, aiming for a little bit higher 110 uh, for what we call damage control resuscitation. And th that's probably... Uh, you know, the concern with that is, is as that systolic blood pressure goes higher and higher, the hydrostatic pressure in those vessels could get higher, higher, and quote, unquote, maybe that, uh, that nice uh, fibrin early platelet clot could dislodge. Uh, the next thing is, is calcium. Uh, as I said, with the high five, that's why the, uh, the, the fourth important thing there is giving calcium. We do know that in massive transfusion protocols, uh, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from 60 to 97% of those patients re, uh, will develop hypocalcemia uh, based on an ionized calcium of 0.9. I don't look at uh, uh, a renal function panel or CMT's calcium level. Uh, I'm an ionized calcium. Remember that most people, you can turn that over quickly with an ABG or a venous blood gas sample. Uh, and so that's why, and we do know calcium is a beautiful inotrope. We also know calcium is important for activation of the intrinsic and extrinsic clotting systems. Uh, and so just don't forget the calcium. And so that's why I think this is a thing that helps me is to go from the lethal triad to the lethal diamond where we're throwing in the hypocalcemia and remembering to give calcium uh, often. All right, the TXA data, and so I got I got to get a little bit of credibility here from my ER docs. Uh, I do have a I have some experience of giving uh, TXA uh, in a pre-hospital setting. So one of my deployments was Afghanistan. I hung out in the back of this Black Hawk. We would fly out and give uh, blood products. Uh, one of the things is when we went blood, we would go vampire, vampire, vampire. Uh, uh, and that was just to tell everybody that we got into a bad situation. We're having to start giving blood and I'm coming in hot to the local, uh, hospital, um, and that patient get ready. Um, but we would give TXA early. This is just, uh, looking at, you know, as soon as we gave blood in the back of, uh, uh the helicopter and this data has now gone into the, uh, EMS, uh, U.S. data, uh, of giving TXA early on, even before, uh, the hospital setting. Uh, and now what I would do is I would give blood, I would give calcium and I would give two grams of TXA. Now, remember that the data out this really supports TXA more in that more uh, severely injured patient. Uh, based on the CRASH-2 data, that's over 20,000 patients in non-military uh, uh, trauma centers. And really, the mortality was seen in patients who required massive transfusions 
and that got this uh, within three uh, three hours of point of injury. Uh, on the bottom here uh, is some data looking at some um, uh, from Afghanistan from 2009 to 2011, and once again kind of showed that once uh, 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 trend again. Now, the thing about TXA, I'll, I'm going to go on a tangent a little bit, Nikhil, sorry about this, but, you know, in I had the privilege of being in Germany in 2011. Germany is a hospital called Landstuhl that we land a lot of our uh, freshly injured uh, service members. Uh, and so within 24 hours uh, through the United States Air Force, those service members would show up. And those service members, a lot of times that, that type of injury we were seeing at that time was a high bilateral lower extremity amputation. And so, you know, our protocol at that point <clears throat> was as soon as those patients arrived, everybody got a lower extremity ultrasound. And if you had a DVT, you were considered kind of uh, a negative uh, for the venous thromboembolism side uh, effect of the TXA. And I just kind of always laughed. I was like, well, isn't that, isn't that what we want? You've had a tourniquet applied. Uh, you survived 24 hours of a huge blast injury. You survived massive transfusion. Uh, and you got TXA. I wanted to see a clot there. That was a positive predictive value in my mind that you actually able to clot off and have hemorrhage control. But I digress on my uh, my belief on TXA. Now, you pulmonologists out there, I uh, I love TXA for any type of intrabronchial uh, bleeding. Uh, I think it's uh, by far one of the uh, superior ways to stop bleeding. Uh, and, you know, when we got down range, our orthopedic, uh, you know, surgeons will often, we would soak TXA gauzes as we were packing wounds. Uh, that's how much we, we believed in TXA. All right. So as we move on, as our patient shows up, uh, as we always talk about with my, uh, with my team members when I'm rounding, uh, if we've got a low blood pressure uh, and this is a true early uh, trauma patient, uh, your pretest probability is probably going to be hemorrhagic shock, hemorrhagic shock, hemorrhagic shock. Let's look for things that we can compress. Let's look at things that we can stop the bleeding. Uh, and, and if we're in a hemorrhagic shock scenario, let's start slinging, slinging blood because we're not going to, we don't care what the CBC and the hemoglobin says at that point. Um, let's go ahead and start those five things that we talked about. But the other thing I've been learned uh, that I've been taught and have scars on this is don't forget the other thing. So back to our patient, they fell from a three story <clears throat> balcony and they landed on their right side. What I always tell everybody, what always bleeds is the spleen. The spleen's always going to bleed. Uh, and so we do a fast exam and we see some blood in the left upper quadrant. But remember, if there's enough blunt trauma to hurt the spleen, uh, what lives right above that spleen is going to be the thoracic cavity. Uh, so it's not uncommon that you can see multiple etiologies of shock in the same patient. So you have hemorrhagic shock because you've got a grade four splenic laceration. Got it. Don't stop there. You've had enough blunt trauma to cause a significant injury to that left upper quadrant. I, I'm saying, okay, you're not going to fool me. I'm looking for a pneumothorax or a hemoneumothorax because I can throw all the blood I need at that splenic hemorrhagic shock. But if I'm not fixing that hemorrhagic uh, tension pneumothorax with a, a catheter, I have missed that etiology. And if there's enough blood trauma there, I've also seen that in the same exact patient, a splenic injury a tension hemorrhagic pneumothorax, and then a cardiac tamponade because they dissected their LAD because of the blunt trauma. 
And so every time there's hypotension, go back to why. And remember, as I was reminded on a traumatic ECMO patient we had two weeks ago on our service, as the fellow calls me in the middle of the night, uh, hey, I'm concerned. We're starting to see some increasing lactate. We're starting to see some increase, uh, decreasing blood uh, 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 maps. We're starting to see a base excess creeping up on us. I said, go back to your fast exam. And what happened at that point? We now had a positive left upper quadrant fast exam. Uh, and we just needed some time and resuscitation to allow that blood uh, and fluid to accumulate. And then we went to the OR and was able to have a positive outcome. So always asking the why on that. The next thing is you can't talk about this without talking about access. Uh, and so, you know, we could do a whole lecture and in, in, in the critical care uh, uh, department, you guys are like me, we love talking about access. Uh, but this isn't uh, this, this is something that you need a, a large bore short catheter. Uh, I know the cortis, which is, uh, what you'll see here is the introducer sheath as an 8.5 introducer sheath, uh, that sometimes gets a bad rap with kinking. I, I personally have not seen kinking with it. Uh, and, uh, my trauma surgeons, when I polled them, uh, this week, uh, <clears throat> they've had no issues with it. Um, but remember that you're going to need better access. And so, you know, getting a triple lumen in also on top of a cortis, uh, will be something that you need to look at, uh, but getting access and large bore access early, you can win the game. If you're able to get to 18 gauge, uh, in the AC, then you can sling blood pretty quickly, uh, with your rapid infusers. Uh, and then I think having an art line in these patients, especially a, a GI bleeder or medical hemorrhagic shock patient, is a nice tool to help guide uh, your resuscitation, help guide your MAP uh, resuscitation, and also, as we talk about in the future, uh, if we have to get into a situation we innovate. The last thing I'll say about this is remember you guys always put these caps on. Um, so these are the caps that you put on routinely. Take those caps, throw them away because those are just going to have resistance to your blood flow. Uh, Reboa, and we could spend hours and hours and hours about the Reboa. The Reboa is a is an arterial device uh, that can be uh, that you you get access through the femoral artery uh, either through a six or an eight French uh, catheter sheath, and then you can go ahead and place this arterial uh, catheter up into a zone three or a zone one. You can blow out the balloon and it will occlude blood flow distally on this. What I will say with this is this is, should, be, should be placed by experts. <clears throat> and there should always be a, a, an understanding with your surgical can, uh, colleagues uh, of, you know, why I'm placing this, when I'm placing this, and, and, and what is our plan to get out of here. If you put this thing up in the zone one, you're probably going to about 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, before you cause significant ischemic changes distally uh, in zone three, you're looking at more two, three, four hours. I will tell you, though, I, I wish I had this at a civilian hospital locally because I can't, at, like I talked about earlier, I've had severe two femoral arterial bleeds that we couldn't stop the bleeding. Uh, that artery had kind of retracted back where I couldn't get to it. And it would have been real nice to go ahead and put a Reboa up, set it right here below the renal arteries, and then go ahead and call uh, my vascular surgeon and get my vascular surgeon in. Uh, but this is a, a, a device that you'll hear about in the literature. Uh, the next thing we need to talk about is a difficult airway. So 
uh, recent literature came out in the last month uh, where these patients should be intubated. And there was some trend that these patients in that should be intubated in the OR versus being intubated in the ER. And I don't think that's any uh, difference between the ER uh, anesthesia uh, techniques. I just think that if you're intubating somebody in the OR, you got that patient completely dra- draped, you got your surgeon with knife in hand, and you can get straight to source uh, to help out with that. Remember, there's an anatomical difficult airway, but really for us, I really think about physical, physiologically difficult airway. As we start getting ready for, if you're going to take the airway uh, in a patient who has hemorrhagic shock and a GI bleed or any type of hemorrhagic shock, I do like to go in with a higher map. So I know damage control resuscitation, I'm aiming for a 100. Uh, but before I intubate, if I'm forced to go down that uh, route um, and and I need to go ahead and perform that procedure, I'll try to have a map at least 75 before I push my rapid sequence intubation uh, medications because even with ketamine or atomidate, which are more of a neutral uh, hemodynamic profile, uh, you're still going to have some hypotension because of that catecholamine uh, decrease once you push RSI. Uh, so I'm always ready to have push dose epi, uh, and I make sure everybody on the team knows how to do push dose epi or even making a dirty epi drip, and Weingart has a nice way to do this. Uh, and then, you know, one of my trauma surgeons reminded me that if, if they really get into a situation uh, where they think this is a really – because one of the concerns you always have is if you push an RSI medication, that patient becomes hypotensive. You've got to make a quick decision. Is that somebody that you're going to go straight to a open thoracotomy uh, to go in there and try to clamp the aorta? Or is that somebody that just had hypotension because they got RSI medication and a catecholamine deplete state? Uh, You would hate to do an open thoracotomy for somebody that just had uh, some normal procedure, paraprocedural hypotension. So he actually said in the high, high risk patients, if he has the capability and time that he'll go ahead and float a Reboa up into zone one, you push the RSI medications. If we get into a hypotension state, go ahead and inflate your balloon, push some, push those epi, see if that map recovers over the next one to two minutes. Uh, and before you just uh, rush off into an open thoracotomy, because we know the data on that is not good. So just remember high, high risk patients uh, uh, proceeding with uh, intubation. So be careful out there. The last slide, I promise, is complications. So remember when you're starting to do massive transfusion, you've got, especially if somebody has blunt trauma like our initial patient, if they've had blunt trauma enough to cause a splenic laceration and a tension hemonumothorax, they're going to have a contusion, which is a is a bruising of the lung. And as we start slinging blood, especially with FFP, we can get get ready for ARDS. Uh, these are my most uh, rewarding ECMO runs because they're usually quick. They're usually multiple days, and we can kind of get that patient stabilized. But ARDS is a complication that you need to look out for. And remember, the more blood you give, the more concern you're going to have for abdominal compartment syndrome, multi uh, organ dysfunction syndrome looking out for elevated potassium uh, as you start having, uh, you know, skin breakdown and you release tourniquets. If you place those with CK elevation, rhabdo, uh, acute kidney injury. Uh, the other thing is that we can't get into, but a really ethical problem that we run into is when do we call it? And so our trauma surgeons and, and even me, it's, it's so hard. You know, do you, do you give 20 units of uh, product? Do you get 40 units of product? Do you give 100 units of product? And that all depends on where you're at. 
Um, and so there is some literature out there that getting above 20 to 40 units of product, uh, your chances of survival are low. So always be communicating with your surgeon uh, of saying, you know, are we going to be able to get source control, hemorrhagic source control, uh, or do we need to start looking at we're running out of product in the blood bank, we can't get resourced, uh, and do we need to have that hard discussion of stopping the uh, uh, resuscitation because we're running out of blood uh, and or we have more casualties coming in from a massive uh, shooting at the local, you know, whatever uh, establishment. Um, and so that gets me to questions. And there's my email. Uh, if you want to email me any questions, uh, uh, there I am. So, Nikhil, over to you, sir.